I'd like to invite you through that Bible app or through the Bible that's there in the pew or the Bible you brought with you to turn to Daniel chapter 5. That's page 617 in the pew Bible. I was not with us last week, but Lee, I'm very grateful, did a phenomenal job preaching on Daniel chapter 4. So grateful for his willingness to step into the pulpit and also for him just letting God use the gifts that he has given him to bring God's word to us. If you weren't with us last week, like I wasn't, Daniel chapter 4 ended on an amazing high note. Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king who conquered Jerusalem, literally was brought to his knees and humbled by the God of Israel. But today, as we turn the page to chapter 5, you'll notice that all of a sudden, without warning, Nebuchadnezzar is gone. A new administration rules in Babylon, and the man in charge is King Belshazzar. However, this wasn't an overnight change. Now, in a second, we'll be reading from this chapter, and when you repeatedly hear Nebuchadnezzar referred to as Belshazzar's father, you might conclude that Belshazzar was the next in line. However, in the context of this chapter, the use of the word father actually means predecessor or ancestor. And the historical record confirms that Belshazzar did not directly secede Nebuchadnezzar as king. So to give you some context to what we're entering into, King Nebuchadnezzar ruled over Babylon for almost 45 years. By the time of this chapter, chapter 5, he's been dead for about 25 years. And there has been a period of instability and political infighting that's finally led to Nabonidus becoming the fourth king of Babylon, the fourth king of Babylon after Nebuchadnezzar. Nabonidus, however, spends much of his time living in the northern desert, what is modern-day Saudi Arabia for us. And so when we come into chapter 5, his son Belshazzar is the second in command. And so effectively, he has taken the throne in Babylon. And again, Babylon, to give you some geography, is modern-day Iraq. He, Belshazzar, is the reigning viceroy in the absence of Nabonidus. And our glimpse into Belshazzar's reign here in chapter 5 comes at a decisive moment. The Babylonian Empire is crumbling. The royal city is, in fact, surrounded and under siege. The wheels of history are turning, and the Persian army is knocking at the door. Surprisingly, though, if you've just even started to glance at the initial verses of this chapter, surprisingly, Belshazzar isn't preparing for battle. He's throwing a party. A lavish celebration, an opulent spectacle, we're told, and his annual feast to his gods. The finest wine, the most beautiful women, nothing but the very best. Belshazzar has spared no expense. He's pulled out all the stops. And as we join the festivities, all the revelry starts to get out of hand as Belshazzar looks to up the ante, to take things up a notch. In a presumptive show of strength, he orders new drinking goblets to be brought in. Gold ones, but not just any gold goblets. Trying to align the might of his reign with that of his royal ancestor, Belshazzar brings in the golden cups, plundered from the temple in Jerusalem all those years back by Nebuchadnezzar. But before he and his guests can swallow their wine, Yahweh, the God of Israel, crashes the party as a disembodied hand begins writing on the wall. You have Rembrandt's artistic depiction of this moment on the slide up on the screen. The king reacts strongly. For while he can't understand the message, there's no denying the messenger. Belshazzar becomes physically ill. In fact, the text actually implies he lost control of his faculties. 
he soiled his armor. The king is desperate. Belshazzar sends for all of his wise men and promises them a portion of his kingdom in exchange for the message and its meaning. And yet, despite such an incentive, try as they might, no one can deliver the goods. And as you can imagine, the king is none too pleased. The text tells us he becomes sick to his stomach. But he has not summoned all the wise men in Babylon. Enter the queen who reminds Belshazzar of the one man he has overlooked, the empire's long-proven ace in the hole, the renowned visionary and interpreter of dreams, a man apparently Belshazzar scarcely knew, the forgotten man named Daniel. And as Daniel enters the scene, he is not the young upstart he once was, who boldly stood before the man in his prime who was on top of the world, Nebuchadnezzar. No, Daniel enters the room many decades later, a little salt and pepper in the beard, as the elder and aged statesman standing before a man much younger than himself who isn't on top of the world, who's just minding the store. I invite you to hear from Daniel chapter 5, starting in verse 13. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like an ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes." But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand, but you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life. And all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. Here is what these words mean Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. 
Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, as we reflect on this story this morning, I'd like us to explore two things. I'd like us to explore the specific nature of Belshazzar's folly. And second, I'd like to explore the significance of God's response, the writing on the wall, if you will. And in exploring both of these aspects of this story, I want us to reflect on how they each relate to our relationship with the Lord. So let's begin by talking about Belshazzar's folly. So many of these stories from Daniel are classic Sunday school stories. Is anyone, as we're going through Daniel, like getting that nostalgia of, I remember reading, hearing about this in Sunday school? Anybody? Yes? Do you remember flanographs? Yeah? Remember learning about these on flanographs? If you don't know what a flanograph is, it's, it's flannel, and then you take the characters and you move things around. It's, it's you know, before we had PowerPoint, we had flannel graphs, you know? <laughs> these stories work so well, they're like ingrained for some of us in our memories on flannel graph, that we can easily treat them as something like fairy tales. And when I say that, I, I'm not implying that we treat them like fairy tales in the sense that they're made up or not true. What I'm getting at is we can treat them, we can reduce them into sort of these stories of a good guy versus a bad guy kind of a story. You know what I'm saying? You know, where King Belshazzar is the villain, boo, and Daniel is the hero, yay. And we just sit back, removed from this story, cheering on as the bad guy gets his comeuppance, right? As Daniel sticks it to the man. But there is a serious danger in viewing the story, stories like these, in this way. In having, if you will, no sympathy for the devil. Because Belshazzar's mistake, his folly, can be and often is our own. What is Belshazzar's folly? As we read this story, there's many things we could point to. You might perhaps say his folly was his pride, and clearly he is arrogant here, defiantly arrogant. You might say it's idolatry, and we talked about idolatry. If you haven't been with us, that was back in chapter 3 when we looked at Daniel in the fiery furnace. And clearly, idolatry is in play here as we're told that, you know, Belshazzar had offered praise and worship to his false gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. But I want to narrow in this morning on something else. Something we don't talk about or pay much attention to these days in the church. I want to talk about Belshazzar's folly of blasphemy. Blasphemy. Blasphemy is profanity. Sacrilege. Uh, While idolatry and blasphemy go hand in hand, they are different. Idolatry is falsely giving devotion and worship to something that is not God, to someone other than God, whereas blasphemy is acting disrespectfully or being irreverent towards God. Now, the thing is this morning is this, this is going to be interesting because in our day and age, blasphemy has become for us mostly a non-issue, hasn't it? It's like an antiquated concern, right? We don't talk about it much. We, we don't focus on it as a problem. At best, if, I mean, when's the last time you heard someone say, that's blasphemy, you, you're guilty of blasphemy. We don't talk like that. We don't, we don't talk about it. At best, if we do, blasphemy does come up, we tend to reduce it to defacing a cross or taking the Lord's name in vain. And 
on the surface of things, that kind of narrow definition would seem to fit what, with what King Belshazzar does here. I mean, what, what happens? He misuses objects from the temple of the Lord. He is irreverent towards things associated with the worship of God. But what I want you to see right from the outset is that you have to look deeper because Belshazzar's folly, his blasphemy, is less about drinking wine out of the golden cups that were once part of a worship, worship in the temple of the Lord. His blasphemy is less about that and it's more about calling out and thumbing his nose at the God of Israel. This is purposeful propaganda, you know? Belshazzar, when he calls for the golden cups, is seeking to make a statement, a commentary about what's knocking on his door, the door of the Babylonian Empire. And this, you've got to keep the context of the whole of Daniel in view here. Remember a couple of chapters back, chapter 2, when way, way back, a long, long time ago, the God of Israel gave Nebuchadnezzar a dream, a vision that this day would eventually come. And if you remember, it was that vision of that giant statue that this day was going to come. Well, <laughs> As Belshazzar pours himself a mixed drink, right, as he mingles the wine of his kingdom with the divinity represented by the table dishware, temple dishware, as he grips the cup that was created to be used in the worship of Yahweh, and as he baptizes it in a toast to his idols, the gods of Babylon, Belshazzar is declaring, it is not the Lord, but it is Babylon that holds the future in its hands. So I've really tried to give you this picture so you really get into it, right? But let's just be honest. This doesn't still seem like much of a big deal, right? Really? I mean, so Belshazzar thumbs his nose at God? I mean, do we really, we really think that's the, he's the only person who's ever done that? Can the Lord's ego not handle the snub, the slight? I mean, if God is God, can't the Lord just kind of shrug it off? What's the big deal about a little name calling? being called out like this. And again, I'm coming back to, if we're honest, blasphemy is not really a concern for us. We might get a little annoyed or maybe even put out by blasphemy. You know, when someone treats the cross with disrespect, that might get under our skin. Or if they, someone treats the name of Jesus like a swear word, it might make us bristle a little bit. But no one really treats blasphemy as a serious offense, do they? The thing is, the thing is though, blasphemy is much more than defacing a sacred object or even invoking the Lord's name disrespectfully. Properly understood, blasphemy is to dishonor or abuse through our speech or our actions anything or anyone the Lord has made. So when we have this bigger definition, blasphemy is misusing, mistreating, violating, any and all aspects of this world, this universe God has created, including and especially another person. We need in this story to follow the reverberations of Belshazzar's blasphemy. Even though it's not explicitly called out, we need to kind of follow where it leads. His arrogant disrespect of God, his, dis, his presumptive dismissal of the Lord's sovereignty has implications for the people under his care, doesn't it? Consider, and I don't know if you've been picturing this yet, consider the contrast between what is going on inside this room and outside in the city. We're told that a thousand select people, a thousand of the nobles, are brought into this room to make merry. And as a thousand select people make merry, they're getting drunk, they're fooling around and having a good time. The rest of Babylon, back in those days about a million people strong, 
the rest of Babylon braces for impact, for invasion, for conquest, as the Persian army continues to wage its assault. So if you're tracking with me, Belshazzar's blasphemy is dishonoring the Lord, not just by belittling God's character and influence, but more significantly by having no regard for God's people, for the welfare and lives of those for whom he is responsible. We can even see his blasphemy, his disrespect in how he treats Daniel. I don't know if you picked this up when I was reading it. If your Bible's open, take a look at it again. His disrespect, he demonstrates his disrespect, Belshadar does, and his foolishness as he tries to buy Daniel off. Did you catch that? He acts like he's going to do Daniel a favor, right? He's going to do him a favor by rewarding him with fortune and fame. But Belshazzar, people, is a pretender, right? He's making promises of bling, fancy clothes, and a piece of the action, but he can't deliver because his kingdom is a house of cards on the verge of collapsing. It's one of my favorite parts in the story. When Daniel replies, you know what? You keep your gifts, your purple, your kingdom, your gold. I'll just hold on to my God. But Belshazzar still doesn't get it. In the end, do you catch this at the very end of this story? In the end, he still tries to save his throne by giving it away. Belshazzar tries to give Daniel what isn't his to give, what he's already lost, rather than to do right by his people and spare them bloodshed and pain. Beloved, can we learn from Belshazzar's folly? Can we recognize our own tendencies in his behavior? If you accept the definition that I gave you, that blasphemy is to dishonor or abuse through our speech and actions anything or anyone the Lord has made, will we examine and consider where we have habitually used God's gifts to us, including people, in dishonoring ways, in ways that ex express disrespect and disregard towards the Lord? I want to be real clear here because if you're like me, you probably haven't thought much about blasphemy and you're probably still stuck in. Blasphemy is when you say Jesus Christ as, a, as some kind of expression of exasperation. That's blasphemy. But I want you to be really clear here in what I'm telling you. What's clear in this story. God can handle human criticism. Even insult and abuse. Even if we're hating and fighting against the Lord. When I encounter that pastor, when someone is, hates God and is fighting against him, that does not concern me. I am not sitting there going, oh, you're in trouble. Oh, you, mm, mm. Because even when we're hating and fighting against the Lord, at least there's a relationship, a basis that can be worked with. And if any of you have been in that place, and some of us in this room have, we've been in those spaces where we have hated God, where we have been fighting against God, you can testify that there is not only a relationship to be worked with there, but God always does. It's the last thing you want, the last thing you would expect, but God always does. No, my friends, what truly offends our creator is dishonoring him by defacing his image, the image of God in another person. What really dishonors the name of Christ and brings it into disrepute is not using Jesus as a swear word. It's Christians claiming to represent him, but ill-treating others, committing abuses in his name or under the auspices of his kingdom. I wasn't here, but I keep tabs. This was part of our discussion this past Wednesday, was it not? This was part of our discussion, how many people are devoted to Jesus, 
and yet find themselves divorced from Christianity. People who have left the church because they felt condemned by Christians or coerced to join the faith. That's what we interacted with on Wednesday night, that that reality that's in front of us, this dichotomy of people who are devoted to Jesus but feel divorced from Christianity. And if we look beyond the company of the wounded, those who believe in Jesus but just not in Christianity, the numbers of the dispossessed get even larger. I mean, how many non-believers, how many skeptics, how many doubters want nothing to do, not just with the church, but with Jesus because of the poor representation, dare I say it, the blasphemous reflection we have offered for Christ. My friends, blasphemy is using God's name divisively, destructively, exclusively, and oppressively. It is claiming God's authority and endorsement for our flawed and sinful human attitudes, prejudices, and actions. Blasphemy is abusing the person of Christ in your neighbor and even your enemy. We dishonor the Lord. We disrespect the glory and significance of Jesus when we invoke Christ to justify dehumanizing or demonizing other people, whether they be homosexuals, single parents, divorcees, Jews, Catholics, Muslims, Republicans, Democrats, whatever. We are committing blasphemy when we co-opt the sovereignty of God for our own selfish and self-aggrandizing purposes. And we are turning the name, the character of Christ into a weapon, invoking fear or horror or derision rather than faith, hope, and love. This was mentioned in our Wednesday discussion and I want to hit on it again here. The love that God demonstrated to us through the sacrifice of his only son on our behalf obligates us to love others. Do you hear that, church? The love that God demonstrates to us through the sacrifice of his only son on our behalf obligates us to love others. We owe it to God to love one another. And that's why in the sermon reflection questions, there's a part in there in that first question where I I ask you, and I really hope you take a look at it later today, to ask Jesus to reveal any lack of humility in your own heart. To listen, to learn from, and follow the example of Jesus in terms of how to respond to those aspects of your life so that you can pull them closer in line with what you know to be God's design and purpose for you and for them. And some of those some of those things that you're going to be re- re- revealing, that you're going to have that insight of lack of humility may have to do with stuff, but it also may have to do with people. And I urge you, all of us, to do this in light of the second thing I want to focus on here in Daniel chapter 5. I urge us all to take this time to reflect and to repent in light of the second thing, which is God's response to Belshazzar. As you heard, Belshazzar's message does not go unanswered, Right? The Lord answers Belshazzar's boastful toast with a bit of, can we just call it supernatural texting? (laughs) Right? And Daniel is able to read and translate the message. And you heard it, but it reads, mene. Mene. The first word means numbered. It's repeated twice to denote intensity. And in verse 26, Daniel says, Belshazzar, your your days are numbered and your number is up. 
The second word is tekel, which means weighed. Verse 27, Daniel says, Belshazzar, your reign has been evaluated, and despite all the pomp and circumstance, you have proven to be a lightweight rather than a heavyweight. And the third and final word is perez, meaning divided or separated. And in verse 28, Daniel does the math for Belshazzar. Your life and your reign didn't measure up, so the party's over. The empire is going to be divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Fascinating thing, the ancient Greek historian Herodotus, you might have heard about him in college or in high school, the ancient Greek historian Herodotus corroborates this account of Daniel. In fact, he tells us that during this banquet, the Persian military commander ingeniously devised a way to divert the Euphrates River that ran through the city. He devised a way to divert it so that the water levels around the moats sank just enough to allow his armies to wade across thigh deep under the cover of darkness. So what he tells us is that Babylon, supposedly secure behind massive walls, was already being conquered at the very moment Daniel was talking to Belshazzar. These events were happening in real time. Belshazzar thought he was invincible. He was sure he was strong enough. He was convinced he had more time. He believed he couldn't lose. But as the last two verses of this chapter soberly inform us, Belshazzar was killed that very night. The city was conquered. The great Babylonian empire fell. My friends, make no mistake, this is a story about judgment. The reality, the truth that no one escapes the judgment of God. Man, this sermon has turned into a bummer, right? First blasphemy, we've got to bring that out. Now it goes from bad to worse. Now we're talking about judgment. Right? Because we don't, we don't like to hear this. We don't like to hear about the judgment of God. That's not what brings people to church, right? You're not going to come back next week. That's not why you're here. You don't want to hear about this. You want to hear about all the good stuff, right? You want to hear about all the stuff God's going to do for you. You don't want to hear about God's judgment. That doesn't, that doesn't sell church. That doesn't bring people to Jesus. Well, you know, <laughs> judgment has sort of fallen out of fashion like blasphemy has. It's kind of fallen out of fashion to talk about God's judgment upon our lives and our world. Some have even tried to extinguish concerns about God's judgment. So if you're looking for another church to go, you can find it. Where we won't talk about God's judgment, we'll just emphasize God's grace. And we, as if somehow we can com- have this complete separation between the, tru- the two, between grace and judgment. Late-breaking newsflash, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Buckle up. Grace. If that's what we want to celebrate, if that's what we want, if that's what we cling to, and amen, we should. Grace, my friends, is only grace in the face of God's real and righteous judgment. If there are no consequences, if nothing matters, if it's all good, if there's no distinction between right and wrong, good and evil, if there is no need for judgment, then there's no need for forgiveness. Then there is no such thing as grace. Now, I know some of you are panicking, And I want you to hear me. Yes, yes, the God of the Bible is a God of mercy and love. Yes, 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 yes. Our Father desires that none should perish. Hear me, none should perish. And he offers us a way home. But it is not around or beyond his judgment, but through it. 
through the reconciliation, redemption, and righting of this world by the cross of Christ. If you don't understand that the cross is as much about God's judgment as it is about God's grace, then you don't understand the cross. My friends, what we're seeing here, what we're hearing loud and clear, whether we want to or not, is there is a point of no return. Our days are numbered. Our life, apart from God, is finite. There is a point where the opportunity to say yes to grace, to say yes to Jesus, becomes sealed by the cold, hard reality of death's door closing. And judgment is all we have left ourselves. We must not take our lives for granted and assume we have tomorrow. We cannot overlook, for me, one of the most significant statements made by Daniel here. And you'll find it in verses 18 through 21, culminating in verse 22. One of the most significant statements that Daniel makes here. He directly tells Belshazzar, even as he proclaims God's judgment, that it didn't have to be this way. That he should have known better. According to Daniel, in those verses, Belshazzar had the legacy of King Nebuchadnezzar's unforgettable testimony. That's what we looked at last week. All of Nebuchadnezzar's encounters with Yahweh, through his weird dreams, his statue building, his playing with fire, losing his mind, and ultimately coming to his senses in turning to the Lord. Belshazzar had all that. But verse 22, hear Daniel, but you, Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. Belshazzar knew about the transformation of Nebuchadnezzar's life, and yet he had repeatedly chosen to reject the God who had been responsible for it. His continued rejection of the Lord culminated in a public act of suicidal defiance that we see here, wherein his time was up and his opportunity to embrace grace was lost forever. Beloved, I believe strongly through his response to Belshazzar, God is cautioning us strongly to not forget one day we too will be held accountable for our thoughts, our words, and our actions. Mene, tekel, parson. Measured, weighed, and found wanting. Belshazzar's impact had been counted and measured, and apart from God, he had been found wanting, divided, broken, destined to fall and fade away. Are our lives apart from God's gracious intervention any different? Mene, tekel, parson, are our lives, are not our lives without Christ measured, weighed, and found wanting? Are we not, without the initiative and power of the Holy Spirit, broken, divided, and destined to fall and fade away? Daniel's word to Belshazzar was that he should have known better, that he did know better. But Belshazzar, rather than acting on what he knew, what the Lord revealed to him, just chose to live in denial, to eat, drink, and be merry, even though his world was full. Heart. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? Doesn't that sound insane? Doesn't that sound nuts? It does. It sounds crazy unless we dare and look at the mirror at ourselves. I mean, how much more knowledge do we have today than Belshazzar? 
How much more knowledge do we have today than Belshazzar? How much more has God revealed to us in our time rather than during the days of Babylon? We are blessed, my friends, to have all of God's revelation to us. The scriptures right at our fingertips. My gosh, right even on your phone. We have the testimony of millions of martyrs and witnesses for the faith. Documentation of countless public and private miracles, movements and glimpses of the kingdom of God. And yet many of us choose to remain still blissfully unaware comfortably numb or willfully in rebellion. And my friends, I am talking to the world in case you're like, yeah, hear it, world, but I'm talking to the church. Wake up, church! Rather than let the Spirit move and work to heal, cleanse, and empower us, how many of us in the church, forget the world, in the church, still choose to find our strength, our enthusiasm, our medicine through other spirits? Ones that we can pour into a glass and hold in our hands. Rather than look out beyond ourselves to see the need to hear our calling to our neighbors, how many of us in the church have buried our talent in the ground as we are still consumed with our own status, our own security, our own pleasure? Instead of making a difference for God's kingdom, we distract ourselves with entertainment with another vacation from reality, another afternoon or late night getting buzzed, or maybe even just completely wasted, right? Drowning out the emptiness, the brokenness, the chaos all around us with another drink, another shameless flirtation, another needless purchase, another ill-advised getaway. Now in case right now you're thinking I'm hammering against having fun and having a good time, that is the farthest thing from the truth. God commands. God created us to enjoy life. He wants us to have joy, to have fun, and to celebrate. Beloved, there is nothing wrong with having fun and enjoying life so long as we are celebrating reality rather than running from it. There is nothing wrong with having a good time and enjoying life so long as we are basking in and giving the glory to God rather than raising and lifting our own glasses, toasting to our own success, stubbornly flaunting our own pleasures, perceiving we can hold God in our hands rather than recognizing we are being held in his. That is Belshazzar's folly. The names change, the situations vary, but the beautiful thing, the gospel, the good news is God just keeps on speaking. God just keeps on revealing and working to get our attention to save us from ourselves. The Lord gives one opportunity after another in life here on earth to say yes to grace and forgiveness, and yet we ignore, delay, or reject such a gift, his invitation at our own loss. You know, some people have noticed, and I'd like to point this out, that if you line up chapter 4 and chapter 5, they're very, very similar, right? You have two kings who both thumb their nose at God, right? In the midst of their similarities, there's one major difference between chapter four and chapter five here in Daniel that I think we ought to pay attention to. The difference is Nebuchadnezzar repents and is restored, whereas Belshazzar does not repent and is destroyed. I'm not making this up. I'm not pulling something out of Daniel five that isn't here. I'm talking about something that, again, we can't get away from. We can't just turn a blind eye to. Forget Daniel chapter 5. King Solomon summarized it this way in Ecclesiastes. God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. And if you don't like the Old Testament, let's skip to the New. 
Because the Apostle Paul makes the same point when he writes, we must all, all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. But again, before we panic, before we, we start to feel crushed under the weight of the reality of God's judgment, the good news, once again, that Paul in that letter goes on to tell us is the reason why God warns us so strongly is because he loves us so dearly. The good news is that our God is relentlessly persistent in getting our attention to reveal the reality of his judgment as well as the promise, the offer of his grace. As we conclude Daniel chapter 5 today, it just occurred to me kind of sitting in this all week long that the hand of God wrote three times in our world. The hand of God wrote three times in our world. The first time is not here. The first time the hand of God wrote in this world was on top of a mountain to command us. The Ten Commandments, first written in stone that God then wrote into every human heart. That was the first time the hand of God wrote upon this world. The second time is here where God used his hand not to command but to condemn. One man, Belshazzar, who in his pride, in his ignorance, and in his spite can be representative of all persons apart from God. My friends, throwing back a cold one and just ignoring the reality of what's happening around us has long been the world's weekend liturgy. But the party is going to end sometime. It's time to see that the writing is on the wall. Our Father is calling us out of the hangover of our denial and rebellion. I don't want to assume that every person here has accepted Christ, is a follower of Jesus. And to those of you who may not be, you came with a family member. Maybe you just showed up for whatever reason. This isn't a game. That's what I'm trying to say to you. This isn't a game. Don't assume you're invincible. Don't assume you have time. Don't assume that you're not going to lose. Don't assume that you can outsmart God. The writing is on the wall. If you're sitting on the fence, I'm inviting you this morning in the name of Jesus Christ to get in the water. To get in the water and to embrace the reality of God's grace and forgiveness. To stop delaying, to stop making excuses, to say yes to Jesus. And going back to our discussion on Wednesday, if you can't say yes to the church, I get that. But don't let not being able to say yes to the church stop you from saying yes to Jesus. This is serious. And for those of us who've been baptized, those of us who say, oh, I'm good, I believe in Jesus, for those of us who've been in the water, let's make sure we're living out of those baptismal promises. Let's make sure that baptismal power of the Holy Spirit, we're letting it be at work in and through us. Let us make sure that we're more concerned about how we reflect and represent the word of God, the person of Christ, than we are about how others treat the Bible or use the name of Jesus. Because what we have here in Daniel chapter five is something that points us to the Lord's third and final an ultimate inscription to us. I told you, the hand of God is written three times on this world. The first time was on a mountain to command us. The second time here, through one man representative of all, it was to condemn us. But the third decisive and final time that God wrote, his hand wrote upon this world was when it was written in flesh and blood on the cross. It was that moment when God wrote a word of judgment revealing the cost of our sin and the penalty of death. But it's a word that God wrote and because of who hangs there, the very son of God, Jesus Christ, was also a word of grace. 
saving us from judgment and lifting us to glory. It is the message. It is the gospel of God. And we cannot afford to ignore or dismiss it. Amen.